So last week, we, we talked about this idea that we're creatures of struggle as it relates to anger and how the Psalms speak into that. What I want to do this morning is we're going to wrap up this conversation from the Psalms, and of course, by the nature of that being such a big book with 150 different Psalms in it, we could go forever. And if you want to keep going in this study, I really recommend, C.S. Lewis has a book called Making a Case for the Psalms, and one of the ideas that I cut out that I was really looking forward to talking about, but just decided that I was going to do something else instead, was he, he wrestles with how the Psalms help us with time, because they speak to the future, they speak to the past, and they speak to the present, and how they invite us into living in all three kind of phases of time, that if, you, if you're really into this and want to keep going with the Psalms in your own study, or even in a small group, that may be a good resource. What I want to do this morning is finish up this series by talking about how I think the Psalms speak to that we're creatures of struggle with, with fear. And I'm assuming that on some level we can all relate to fear because to whatever extent this is a season of anger, what we talked about last week, it seems like it's just as much one of fear. And yet what can make the interpersonal dynamic so tricky is even if we can acknowledge that we're dealing with some fear, it seems like we're all impacted differently and we're fearing differently. I mean, there's, there's those of you fearing getting COVID and then there's those of you fearing what happens to your life if you get COVID. And then just this week, talk to someone who's like, my, my, my fear is like giving someone COVID. And I think all have their place. But again, even that, we're fearing different things that, re- that relates to that. And then there's jobs. I mean, some of us, that there's tremendous fear around our business and the viability of it in the future or, or even just the social dynamic of our jobs. There, there's fear for our kids and you, I'm sure, have observed this, but depending on if someone has kids, what age and stage they're in has tremendous impact on how fears are impacting them right now. Uh, there, there's the fears around school, and I, I just genuinely have a lot of compassion for those of you who are public educators and just the unknown right now, and frankly have just as much for our kids and the reality that, I mean, we, we're generations deep in the way we're asking our kids to live since anyone else has had to do the things that we're asking them to do and the grief around the loss of sports and the loss of activity and the loss of friends. And there's just a lot to be afraid of right now. And so there's this, there's this model of the Psalms that I was inter- introduced to when I took the class that I referenced earlier uh, in this series that when I first saw it, I thought it was pretty neat. And I also thought it was the type of thing that like that the, the was maybe too academically nerdy to be useful. But as I've been trying to process the same stuff you're processing, and part of the reason why we're trying to model through Q&A is the value of conversation, because I really don't see myself as any kind of guru, but to whatever extent it's helpful for me to kind of curate content and experience, what I've realized is that there's a, there's a story that I think the editor of the Psalms is trying to tell that has everything to do with fear that I think isn't that far removed from our own experience. And so if we can step back and see how they processed fear, maybe that can help us. And so the way it goes is, uh, again, if, if you haven't been with us in this series, part of what the thesis of this series from my perspective is that we have individual authors of the Psalms and we don't often know the exact time and date or even author of when they were written. What we know is that the people of, of Israel had these psalms that were useful to them in several different varieties, but, but at some point, th- this collection was, was put into a book. It was edited. You think of it like, at some point, somebody walked downstairs and saw Grandma's vinyl record collection and decided to like put it together in an anthology of sorts. And one, thing that, one way to look at the book of Psalms is at some point an editor or editors decided to put this book together and what Psalms they edited out, we don't know. What Psalms they added in their final collection, we don't know. There's good reason to think that Psalm 1 was written uniquely as an introduction and Psalms 146 
through 150 were written uniquely as a conclusion. We don't know the facts around any of those things, but what we do know is by the nature of the Psalms have several authors from several generations is we're not given them in like chronological order in which they were written. They were curated for us. Someone said, well, you should hear this story, and then you should hear this one, and then this one, and all the way through. And also, they, they put them in books within the book. So think of Harry Potter. There's seven books in that series. Is that correct? Or something like C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, I think also seven. Like, so you've got the bigger story, and then you've got the smaller stories within every book. Well, the Psalms do the same thing, only there's five. So you may or may not be aware, but this, this, this isn't done by Zondervan or some modern Bible editor. This goes a ways back. Book one is considered to be one, Psalms 1 through 41. We can just kind of power through those, Holly. Book, thank you. Book two is 42 to 72. Book three is 73 to 89. Book four is 90 to 106. And book five is 107 to 150. But beyond that, and this is the piece that, man, if this is too nerdy for you, I'm sorry. Come back next week when we're going to deal with... God and the sovereignty of God and the pandemic. Uh, but, but beyond that, every book has its theme. So like book one, the, the theme, and what we mean by that is the majority of psalms within that book speak to this idea. Now there's outliers, there's exceptions. I, I think, if I recall, Brueggemann says that 40 of the 41 psalms in book one deal with David as king. And here's what that sounds like. In Psalm chapter two, this would be one of the examples of the psalm of a, of a King David's psalm. And what I want you to watch for before I read is, this isn't a lament. This isn't a like, when we had power or if we had power. This is a like, we're the world championship champions and we've won it three years in a row kind of psalm. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, David. Let us burst their bonds asunder and cast their cords from us. In other words, Israel's in charge right now. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord has them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This is like George Washington, kind of early American history stuff. King David, the the whole book one looks back on a time when David was king and Israel was the champion and there's nothing anybody else could do about it. But again, we're not giving them necessarily in the order they're written, we're giving them in these assembled parts. Well, then book two has a new theme and that theme is David and Solomon's kingdom, which is similar, Solomon being David's son, but where it's different is, uh, the the difference is when David was king, there was no temple, right? We We had a tabernacle. When David was king, the infrastructure, you might say, was, was pretty archaic. Solomon's era represents when, when the infrastructure, when the institution, when the temple clad in gold and beauty, when it caught up to the kingdom. Psalm 66 would be an example of, of a psalm from book two that I think grabs hold of this theme. And we're going to transition from, first of all, because remember, in the ancient Near East, your God's strength was relative to your country's power. So when Israel was in charge, when other countries looked up to them, which we know historically was true for an era, that said something about Yahweh. Make a joyful noise to God all the earth. Sing sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Sing to God how awesome are your deeds because of your great power. Your enemies cringe before you. 
all the earth. See this, this like triumphant language. All the earth worships you. They sing praises to you, sing praises to your name. And then we move into temple, because this is the area of temple. So verse 13 of that same psalm. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will pay you my vows. Though that my lips, those that my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fatlings with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I'll make an offering of bulls and goats. So this represents this era in Israel's kingdom when not only were they the, the, the big dog in town, but they had the, the cultural infrastructure. They, they had the monuments. They had the stuff that was like, yeah, they're the champs and they've got the stadium to prove it. But then book three, and if you're familiar with Psalms, most of the laments, most of the like, God, where are you? They fall in book three. And book three speaks to the dark days of the divided kingdom. So maybe a refresher, maybe a first time on Israel's history, but at some point, David and his dynasty had to to pass through generations. And as, as is often the case with estates today or even family businesses, that didn't go so well. You ended up with this situation where David's grandsons, uh, they couldn't necessarily agree how to, how, how to rule things and to divide things up. And one of the issues from a political standpoint, I think, I thought this was fascinating. This might be too much history nerdage for you. But what we now know looking back is, so Israel was comprised of 12 tribes. And, and upon reflection and study, when you look, the, the, the 11 northern tribes, they had the wealth. They had the person power, they had the natural resources, they had the water, they had the acreage to grow crops. The northern tribes had the wealth. The one southern tribe, Judah, had the one thing the north didn't have. And that was what? The temple, the government, Jerusalem, Zion. They they had this, this one place and this one system And so the tension that grew, and I'm not trying to make any kind of political statement here, but I just think it's befitting that this is what's true today was true then. The the tension was that the South made its existence by taxing the North, and there began this growing divide among them, and eventually the North just went, we don't need you. We'll just just build our own capital, which they did, and our own temple, which they did, and, and this is this divide that occurs. And so you ended up with two countries, and that didn't last very long. In 723, the northern kingdom went down. They were conquered. In 586, the southern kingdom was conquered. But what you see in book three is this lament around, and, and maybe, maybe if you're a parent and have old enough kids and you can imagine a divide among your adult children, or maybe you've been a part of watching an estate go very poorly, but the grief contextually is often dealing with the grief of the kingdom being divided. Uh, Listen to that of verse 72, or 77, sorry. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God that he may hear me. And the day of my trouble I seek the Lord. In the night my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. I think of God and I moan, I meditate and my spirit faints. So I guess what I'm trying to put out there is there's this narrative arc that maybe is more similar to our own than we think. David is young and on top of the world and then the system follows and the infrastructure's there and then suddenly things start going poorly and there's this lament that begins to occur. And then in book four, we transition into the Babylonian exile. Now I've, I've talked a lot, you can go to that next slide, but I've talked a lot about this for the last several months. What caught me off guard in all this is you would think that the laments would happen largely from the exile section and they don't. Really, the theme of the Babylonian exile section of the Psalms, or the fourth book, 
is this time when the people of Israel, in the absence of a temple, in the absence of their land, in the absence of many of the things they knew in Jerusalem, there's this season of rediscovery. Like, like maybe, maybe you've lost everything before, whether relationally or financially. Maybe you've lost your health before. I think on some micro or macro level, we've probably all dealt with this where we're forced to go like, man, I kind of got off track there. What happens in book four in exile is the people of Israel, in the absence of all the other complementary parts, they start asking the bigger question of who am I? And who is God? And whose am I? And what does it mean to be the people of God? And what does it mean to have God as king? Psalm 90, I love book four of the Psalms. Listen to verse 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Now the editor's note will tell you that's a Psalm of Moses. But the message here, again, it means one thing if you're standing in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount, but it means something else if you're maybe five months into COVID and everything that you thought you had to have has been stripped from you. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Like I would imagine it's one thing to declare you are God at 18 in the pinnacle of health and another thing to declare that when when you're in old age and dying of cancer. That's That's the context here. In Babylon, these people are rethinking everything. 91, you who live in the shelter of the Most High who abide in the shadow of the Almighty, will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Again, do you see how it's one thing to say that if you've got a big army behind you and you're going, we're coming for you, like, like Mel Gibson in, 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 that, in, what was that, Braveheart. It's another thing to say that if you're in Babylon and it's not even legal for you to be talking about Yahweh publicly, but there's this new conversation about, wait, wait a minute, we are safe. Why? Not because we have a temple. Not because, why? Because God is king. And in fact, theologically what you see in Israel, and, and we could get into some all kinds of nerdy things here, but what you begin to see in book four is this reclaiming that though there was a season where David was their king, God always was their king. Psalm 93 is an example of this. The Lord is king. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed, he is girded with strength, he has established the world. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. Again, this is not, like, you're not saying this after you just won the championship. You're just saying this after your, like, hundredth straight losing season. They're standing in Babylon declaring God is king while not having any of the things that you would normally expect a regional God to provide. And then book five then transitions fully into the kingship of God. Listen to Psalm 145. And again, what stands out to me here is when I read these things before knowing the context, you're like, yeah, yeah, God's king. And I could, we could probably have you sing a song about God being king, and theologically, you wouldn't even trip over it. Like, we go, yeah, 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 God's king. But these guys, they, they've, they've earned it. They've rediscovered it. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. And then go ahead to 149. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise and the assembly of the faithful. Let Israel be glad in its maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. 
See, the way book five, the context is the return to exile and this reclaiming of God as king. But historically what happened was 50 or so years into their exile in Babylon, Cyrus of Persia defeated the Babylonian kingdom. This is what a big portion of Isaiah is about, is this this, this warning that, that there will become another king who's going to crush Babylon. Well, that occurred. Cyrus crushed Babylon. And then one of the unique things Cyrus did was he gave permission to all these exiled peoples to go back to their native lands and reestablish their native religions and cultures and languages and arts and all of that. The one caveat, the one exception, though, was they could do all of that, but they had to still see Cyrus, the king of Persia, as their king. So to whatever extent they were going to set up a government, that, those were going to be vassal governments underneath this larger government. Well, what we know historically it was that given that permission, multiple different peoples, ethnicities, they, they attempted it, but they couldn't pull it off. They, they could not subtract their own governmental king from their identity as a people. And, and functionally, they assimilated into Persian culture, which eventually became Greek culture, which eventually became the, the Roman Empire. The exception to that was the people of Israel. Now, the degree to which you want to see them as these people of God uniquely called, that, that's, that's a separate conversation. Like Historically, what we know is that Israel maintained its identity. It returned to Jerusalem. It rebuilt its temple. It reestablished its way of life there. But the reason they did was because of the hard work that happened in exile, where in exile they relearned, like, wait a minute. Yeah, we had a king named David, but our king was always Yahweh. And in some ways, the New Testament picks up this same tricky conversation. What does it mean to be under Caesar and yet have God as your king? You see Jesus weighing in and he's going, well, I'll tell you what, give to Caesar what's his and give to God what is his. You have Paul weighing in where in Romans 13 he goes, whatever it means to have God as your king doesn't mean that you just become anarchist because all government authority is given to you from God. But you also have Jesus being very real about the fact that because God's king doesn't mean life is just simple and easy. He says things like, in this world you'll have many trials. But take heart, I've overcome the world. So here's to me is the, the, the question, and I don't have a good, like, here's three things you can apply tomorrow, but this for me is from this kind of 30,000 foot where I'm feeling emotionally is it's time to reestablish some semblance of normal. Like we've been in faith crisis mode for five months, and I'm not trying to criticize that, but I do wonder to what extent it's time that we start asking the basic questions again of what, what, what does it mean to, to be the people of God? And let me just say, my motive there is not to say, therefore, you should all come back here on Sunday. That's actually not the conclusion I've come to. I can respect that for different reasons, we're all going to choose how we operate in our faith for this next unforeseen amount of time differently. And I think there's good reasons to, to disagree on that one. But here would be my challenge, is to whatever extent the traditional Sunday experience is a part of the answer, if we can acknowledge like that's going to look different for all of us for different reasons... Could we also go, but wait a minute. Like, we still have a responsibility to, to ask the deeper question of what does it mean to be the people of God? And if we allow that in the early part of the crisis there was this, like, just return to self, I think that's reasonable. At what point do we look to Israel as a model and go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We've got to rethink what it means to be the people of God. 
Remember, this was the season in their own history where they invented synagogue. They went, okay, we don't have a temple, we don't have an altar for burnt sacrifices, but what can we do? Well, we can collect the stories that define our faith, and we can get together, and we can have conversation about what it, who God is and what God's like and what his plans for the world really are. And what does it mean to be under God's kingship? See, where I see this all relating to fear, and maybe it's one of those things that's so indirect that it only makes sense in my own head, I guess you get to be the judge of that is that what I see in Israel's story is reasons to be terrified, especially in that middle section of the divided kingdom and the Babylonian exile. But at some point, aren't you obligated to take your eyes off the very thing that's causing fear, not deny its existence, but to just go, okay, but but one step removed from what does COVID mean is this question of who is God? And what does it mean that he's king? And what does it mean to live under his authority? And what does it mean to be his people? So I guess my challenge here is, what if the Psalms model for us that we work our way through fear lots of ways, but we ought not look past that one of the major ways is to rediscover what it means to be God's people and how we are personally going to apply that communally And what does it mean to live under the authority of God despite what's happening around us? So I want to pray. I want to give opportunity for dialogue just to model the value I think that has and the future that it brings. God, thanks. Um, I feel like this is kind of 30,000 foot, maybe too esoteric stuff, God, but it just feels to me as we move back towards school and back towards the fall, that at some point we, there's this opportunity to take our eyes off of the thing that we fear and instead to, without denying its existence, make maybe more intentional questions about what does it mean to be the people of God and what does it mean to live under the authority of God. Amen. If you would like to learn more about Narrate Church, find us at narratechurch.org or look us up on Facebook and Instagram.